Good evening and welcome to the October 26th edition of Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7 o'clock and I'm your host, John Boyer. Last week, Technician Editor-in-Chief Amanda Wilkins sat down to talk with Chancellor Woodson, who was officially installed earlier this morning. You can read more of their conversation in this morning's copy of Technician. Also note that the Chancellor's Ice Cream Dream, an event to commemorate Chancellor Randolph Woodson's installation, will take place on the Brickyard tomorrow from noon to 1245. The event will unveil the new Chancellor's Choice flavor of Howling Cow Ice Cream, our new Chancellor's personal creation. Here follows Amanda and the Chancellor's conversation. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. Joining us in the studio is Chancellor Randy Woodson. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Amanda? I'm doing okay. So just to start off today, you know, how has your time been here so far? It's been great. It's gone fast. Um, you know, I've spent, uh, I've been here six months and I've spent a lot of the time getting to know the state of North Carolina and the constituents of NC State, the students, the faculty, the alumni, been all over the state of North Carolina. So it's been fantastic. So North Carolina has 100 counties and you try to visit all of them this summer. How did that go? Well, the approach we took was to visit the seven economic development zones. So the state is divided into seven regional economic development partnerships that account for all 100 counties. So we met with the board uh, of each of the seven regional economic development partners. And so in that way, I was able to connect with every county. But I didn't, I wasn't successful in visiting all 100 counties, but I've been to a lot of them. What, what was your favorite area of the state? Oh, now, Amanda, you're not <laughs> going to get me to go there. My favorite area is the NC State campus. We did we had a, a great alumni event on the mm-hmm. battleship of North Carolina in Wilmington. Uh, we had a great event in Asheville. It was wonderful in the middle of the summer when it was uh, quite warm in Raleigh to be in the mountains. Okay, so a little bit of your background before you came to NC State, um, even before you became an administrator, what was your background? Well, my background, scientific background, is is horticulture and plant science. I study, uh, my real interest is plant development, and I was specifically interested in the reproductive process of plants, how how plants go about the business of of reproducing through uh, floral structures, and, and in particular, I was interested in the plant uh, hormonal signals that they use for the reproductive process. Mm-hmm. And so the practical applications of my work was extended shelf life of horticultural products, improved shipping and handling and storage of, post, of, of uh, floral products and, and fruit. How is the university's investment in the 10% campaign important to the state? We've committed to, uh, to the 10% campaign mm-hmm. for buying locally, mm-hmm. uh, and we're on board. We're one of the early sponsors. Mm-hmm. How is this important for the university and the state of North Carolina? It's important for the state of North Carolina to keep our farmers and, and to, to support local farming and to do it um, by purchasing locally. So it just sends a statement that North Carolina is one of the most diverse agricultures, in the, frankly, in the U.S., and we have more opportunities to buy locally than many states. That, that would be a difficult thing in a lot of states, but here it's possible and it just I think it just sends a signal that uh, the land-grant university that's supported uh, North Carolina agriculture for so long is uh, one of the early ones to sign on to the idea of purchasing 
from North Carolina Agriculture. So how is the Provo search going? Uh, the Provo search is going very well, and it's nearing the final stages of bringing the finalists to campus for interviews in the next um, – in fact, we're working now to, to get the date set, and we hope to have all the interviews complete by Thanksgiving. Oh, okay. So why, why has it taken so long, though? Actually, it hasn't taken long at all from a national search perspective. Part of it is that um, you don't initiate a search like this that involves faculty and students when the faculty and students aren't here. And they're largely not here in the summer. So it couldn't begin in earnest until the beginning of the fall semester. And it's uh, the middle of October now. You've got to give candidates a chance to apply. So I think it's actually gone uh, very quickly. Have you seen any effects in student affairs after moving student affairs under the provost? No, I have not. Only positive. Okay. Student affairs, I mean, the critical thing is that student affairs is part of the academy. We need to support students in their effort uh, to to gain a, a strong education. And so it was quite unusual for us to not have student affairs embedded embedded in the academic affairs section of the university. So that was why the change was made. Okay. What are your thoughts on WEL so far? WEL is a tremendous asset for this institution. She, uh, she has a lot of experience in leading athletic programs at two uh, major universities in the U.S. And so she has tremendous experience uh, she has a business business ethic about her in terms of how to organize uh, athletics and how to uh, elevate the expectations and uh, to enhance the – I think you're already seeing impact. Not, not necessarily – I mean, I don't think Debbie would stand up and say, you know, I'm responsible for the football team winning. But what you have seen evidence of is a different uh, level of energy – uh, enthusiasm, marketing, um, Wolfpack Unlimited, you know, the notion that uh, we are taking this up a notch. So she is doing a great job. For the installation, you've come up with a slogan, locally, response, locally responsive, globally engaged. So what does that mean to you? Well, this is an institution that uh, its reputation is both local and global. And what I mean by that is that uh, if you ask the industries in the triangle what university they look to for support, NC State is at the top of their list. In fact, a recent survey in the Triangle Business Journal of all of the industries in the triangle uh, said that NC State was the most important university to their success. That's locally responsive. Also locally responsive is everything we do across all 100 counties in the state of North Carolina through extension and what we do to support manufacturing and other industrial pursuits through the Industrial Extension Service. So that's locally responsive. But the fact is this university is globally engaged. Uh, Our students are graduating from here, and they're part of a global economy. Uh, We have students from all over the world. Uh, We have students from 130 countries at NC State. That's a globally engaged university. So it's very unusual to have a university that plays on both of those stages to the extent that NC State does. So that's what it means. So the university strategic plan is, is a big thing right now. It's whoopee-doo. It's, <laughs> uh, it's off and running. <laughs> yes, It's really sure. big. Um, so what spurred you to want to develop this plan? I want this institution to have a clear, shared vision for our future. I want everyone 
to understand where we are and where we're going and the steps that it'll take to get there and how we'll measure progress toward those goals. And a transparent, open planning process that culminates in a clear document that uh, everyone has had a chance to have input into and uh, everyone will have a clear sense of where we're headed is the value of a plan. You know, plans are are, uh, often... Uh, used in environments where the budgets are growing. Clearly, that's not the case at NC State right now. And frankly, it's not the case in higher education in general. But um, a a clear plan that identifies priorities is important when you're in a shrinking budget because you have to make critical decisions about where you put your money. And without a plan, it's hard to make those decisions. So what kind of feedback have you received from the task forces that you divide the strategic strategic plan up into well honestly you know i'm trying to let them work without excessive oversight from the chancellor so um you know the i've been to several meetings uh but i'm not i'm not micromanaging this process so i think at this stage the task forces are all up and running and busy and uh aren't checking in with the chancellor every day so recently you've been holding town hall meetings regarding fees and tuition. What are your thoughts on the, the, the attendance or the lack thereof? Well, the most important thing from my perspective is I make myself and the people that report to me available and accountable for the, the, um, the plans that we have. And, and so I'll, I'll do that. And, um, you know, I would hope people would attend. But um, it's their choice. How do you think the faculty is performing this year and, you know, in the recent past? We have outstanding faculty. We're one of the most uh, competitive research-intensive universities. Uh, We consistently, if the faculty weren't performing, I don't think the Wall Street Journal would call us the 19th best university from a recruiter's perspective. So... I believe our faculty perform incredibly uh, well, and they perform incredibly well in an environment where we're in our third year without salary increases, um, and that's faculty and staff. That's the entire university community. So, and, and when we continue to be in an environment where uh, resources are constrained. So faculty and staff have really stepped up to the plate to continue to deliver, uh, but it's it's very we're stretched very very thin now. So how does research at um, our university stack up to you know local universities as well as national? Our research is we we are a top ten university in terms of comparing us to universities that don't have medical schools. Universities that have medical schools are an entirely different field because of the level of funding from the National Institute of Health. So when you compare us to those universities with which we compete that do not have medical schools, this year we were seventh in the country. So uh, we, we do very well. So as a final question, in just looking back on you know the past of NC State, um, how do you feel about being a part of the rich history of the university? This is a great uh, campus. I knew that. Before. I wouldn't have come here if it wasn't. I mean, I knew that coming here. And uh, I'm excited to be a part of this history, uh, and I'm excited to be a part of the future. And I intend to be here uh, as long as I'm uh, 
working. And uh, I, I would like, I mean, our plan was to come here to be successful and retire in North Carolina. So we intend to be here for the, the duration. We're thrilled to be here. Obviously, resources are constrained. Um, this is a difficult time for all of public higher education. But I think we have everything in place to be responsive to it. We have a strategic planning process that will help us identify priorities. We have uh, a fundraising process that will help us grow the endowment. Uh, we're doing everything we can to support faculty in the effort to grow the research funding and to limit and, and to reduce class size. So I think we're on the right track. Thank you, Chancellor Woodson. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Evan's opinions on the latest news. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. There's a comforting cliché resonating within segments of our country's gay community. Coined by advice columnist Dan Savage in response to heightened media coverage of gay youth suicides, it goes like this. It gets better. His intent was to provide tormented gay youth with a modicum of solace, hopefully preventing more senseless suicides like those of 18-year-old Tyler Clementi, 15-year-old Billy Lucas, and 13-year-old Seth Walsh. Savage quickly established the It Gets Better project, an online repository of videos offering words of encouragement to gay youth to which anyone can freely contribute. This is an honorable endeavor, to say the least. However, leave it to a politician to dirty an honorable endeavor with empty words and a shark smile. A day after his administration requested that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issue a stay and a landmark decision overturning the military's discriminatory don't ask, don't tell policy, President Barack Obama submitted a video to the It Gets Better project. In his typical cool, collected demeanor, he told viewers, quote, it gets better, end quote. In light of his administration's request the day prior, it would be truly audacious to hope for such a result. On numerous occasions, the president has made clear his intent to repeal the policy that federal judge Virginia Phillips found to violate the equal protection and First Amendment rights of gay American service members. Obama's stubborn insistence on fighting against civil rights in the name of precedent should prove that his interests lie elsewhere. In an editorial in the New York Times, Duke University law professor Walter Dellinger asserted that even while devotedly defending precedent, the president could inform the court that his administration finds the law unconstitutional. However, when asked on numerous occasions, the president has refused refused to declare don't ask, don't tell unconstitutional, instead simply stating that he finds the policy to be, quote, not in the best interests of national security. With the November midterm elections looming overhead, it's easy to see that he's traded his spine for political capital. This president or the president has often stated that gay rights parallel civil rights. As a gay American, I will not compromise the fight for my rights in the name of political expediency and incrementalism. I want the equality that my Constitution declares to be inalienable, inalienable, and I want it now. Barack Obama is wrong to play politics with a moral imperative and then tell people like me it gets better. That's why I'm issuing a stay on casting another vote in his favor until he casts a vote in mine. The views in this editorial do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. The time is 7.15 here at WKNC. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm John Boyer. We like it when you get in touch with the show if you have something to say about anything we've done or will do so far this evening. Drop us a line on Twitter, WKNC EOT, or WKNC 881. 
Email publicaffairs at wknc.org and find us on Facebook. It's Eye on the Triangle, as you might have guessed. Coming up after the break, we'll have some interesting stories about Registration Week, uh, Steve Trash, magician at the State Fair, ethnic markets with Mark, and more talk about NCSU football. Big game on the way. And it's all on the way after the break here on Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.17 here on Eye on the Triangle. I'm John Boyer. Katie Costa joins us now to talk about weather. There's a lot of nasty weather out to our west. Is it going to clear out in time for Halloween weekend? Well, I've got some good news and some bad news, John, so I'll let you know. Well, today, temperatures climbed back up into the 80s, and it was a pleasant day for the most part, despite the humidity and lingering rain this morning from last night's storms. Right now, it is currently 75 degrees out there with 8-mile-per-hour winds from the south. Expect mostly cloudy skies overnight with a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms after midnight and a low of 70 degrees. Now, be sure not to put away all of your summer clothes just yet because we will climb as high as 85 degrees tomorrow, which is considerably warm for this time of year. And also be sure to bring a rain jacket with you on your way out tomorrow because we do have a very strong cold front just out to our west. And this is expected to slowly pass through our region tomorrow and tomorrow night. This will bring us a chance for severe weather tomorrow afternoon and evening, so be sure to be on the lookout for any severe thunderstorm watches or warnings that may be issued. Expect temperatures to drop down to about 67 degrees Wednesday night and into Thursday morning. Now, Thursday temperatures will get up to about 79 degrees with a 50% chance of lingering showers and thunderstorms in the morning, but the sun will break through by the afternoon, giving us great news. Pleasant weather just in time for the Florida State game Thursday night. Temperatures will be dropping down into the lower 40s, however, overnight. So if you are planning on heading out to the game, be sure to bring a sweatshirt or jacket along with you just in case. Now, we will be seeing a break from the 80s trend on Friday since we will only be reaching 64 degrees for the high. However, it will be sunny, so even though it will be cooler, it will be a pleasant day to enjoy the outdoors. Now, Friday night could very well be the coldest night of the season so far since the low is expected to get down to a chilly 37 degrees. So be sure to grab a jacket if you are planning on heading out Friday night. Now, if you are planning on heading out Saturday night to the Hillsborough Street Haunted Hike promoted by Carolina Nightlife, be sure to add an extra layer to your costume since the low is expected to drop to a brisk 40 degrees. It is going to be a lot cooler compared to last year since last year it remained in the upper 50s. But the good news, though, is that it will be mostly clear conditions for the hike despite the cold temperatures. Now, for all you trick-or-treaters out there, it looks like we will be seeing pleasant fall-like weather on Halloween Day with highs around 71 and mostly sunny skies. Early in the evening, it will be mostly clear and temperatures will drop down to the mid to upper 50s, so perfect weather for trick-or-treating. Overnight, expect temperatures will continue to drop to about 49. So, John, it looks like overall our main concern is the chance for severe weather tomorrow afternoon and evening. Also, you really will need to dress warm if you are planning on heading out this weekend since nighttime temperatures for both Friday night and haunted hike night look pretty spooky. Hike night or Franklin Street. Not that we're allowed that over there. That is true. <laughs> okay. But haunted hike is better. <laughs> you know, I've been saying for weeks, Katie, I want it to feel like fall. And this week is sort of just like another disappointment. But finally this weekend, some fall-like weather, and it's going to be just in the nick of time. Because, hey, it's almost November. I can't believe it. What else happens this time of year? Registration for those of you enrolled here at NC State. Some of us have already done it and had our share of frustrations and disappointments. And some of you out there may be doing it soon. And some of you might just want to know, hey, what kind of interesting classes do we have here at NC State right now? Well, our correspondent Mason Morris went out to figure that out. 
Spring registration is now in progress or just around the corner for most NC State students. This means that it is time for students to build up their schedules with classes to meet college requirements. But what about fun courses? This week on Eye on the Triangle, I begin searching for the ultimate, fun, quirky, innovative classes offered by the university. First, Professor Bryce Lane of Principles of Horticulture. My name is Bryce Lane. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Horticultural Science at NC State. I teach HS201, which is called Principles of Horticulture, HS100, which is called Home Horticulture. I also teach a garden center management course for majors in our department. A horticulture is kind of a unique hybrid with botany. It's, a, it's an applied botany. Technically defined, horticulture is the study of the cultivation of gardens. And, of course, the concept behind garden is anywhere you'd have plants. So it's very plant-oriented, but it's also very practically oriented. We get a lot of people that are interested in owning and operating their own businesses, from landscaping to vegetable gardens, you know, growing your own food, to working in greenhouses where they grow plants, plant properties. Uh, very entrepreneurial. We have a number of students that are also very interested in the genetic aspect of horticulture, plant breeding to develop new plants, both for food and for aesthetic purposes. In 30 years, a lot of the sciences have changed, specifically in the genetics area. You've got plant biotechnology now, where I'm used to have just classical plant breeding. Of course, classical plant breeding is still alive and well. It's still a way that new plants are developed, but now we've got a lot of other more basic scientific approaches to development of new plants, incorporating disease and insect resistance into plants, that type of thing. It's a three-credit hour course. It meets in the spring. It'll meet Tuesday and Thursday for an hour and a half each or for 75 minutes each each day. Principles of horticulture classes, uh, it's a lecture format, but I try to create a real dynamic atmosphere where, yeah, there's lecture. There are a lot of images I use for slides. Of course, you know, the classic PowerPoint presentations are in there, but we also do things like demonstrations, classroom discussion. We even have a couple of one-act plays that students participate in. So I try to mix it up a lot to keep it interesting. There's one one-act play we do to help demonstrate how plants absorb nutrition. I use three different people to kind of show how the nutrients are literally taken up by the plant and transferred into the, the plant tissue. Homework load is not bad. Students have four exams during the semester, which includes the, a comprehensive final. There's also a, um, they choose from a menu of what we call mini assignments, where um, this gets them, you know, a little bit more hands-on. One example of one of the assignments is that they evaluate the life of cut flowers in different solutions, or they go to a garden center and evaluate how well those plants have been named. The course itself is really designed to show how horticulture is part of everyday life. We talk about significant events and people in history that affected what we now know as horticulture. Talk about how botanical principles like how plants get their names, how they grow. You know, it's a course that ultimately we don't, it's it's not a lot of how-to as much as it is. Here are the basic principles. Okay, now here's how you apply them to everyday life. And it's really the idea is that when you walk out of that classroom at the end of the semester, you really look at the world around you a little bit differently than you did when you came in. We do get a number of students who will take principles of horticultural, they'll take home horticultural, and they'll decide that maybe they're interested in minoring in horticulture or even majoring in it. Actually, they come and see me. I'm the undergraduate coordinator, and uh, we talk about some other courses that they could take to either feed their interest in plants and gardening or perhaps consider double majoring or majoring in that field. And we have a number of other courses that students can take. In fact, um, this coming spring, a colleague and I are offering a brand new course for non-majors who are interested in going one step further from the principles. It's called Power of Plants Appreciation and Use. And it's kind of a, it's not really a plant ID course as much as it is talking about unique and interesting plants and the role they play in everyday life. Try to keep it from being boring. 
I next spoke with Professor Will Hooker to discuss his unique course. My name is Will Hooker. I am a professor in the Department of Horticulture Science, and the course we're talking about today is Introduction to Permaculture. The numbers on it are HS 432, and I also have a graduate section. Same lecture, same readings, expanded assignments, and that's HS 590. Permaculture is a contraction of two words, essentially. Permanent, if you take the first two syllables, perma. And then the second one is often associated with agriculture, or the last two syllables, culture. When I'm teaching the course to what I call the live students, <laughs> I have a distance ed course that people can take. And in fact, this coming spring, I'm not going to be able to teach a live course. It will only be offered distance ed. But when I have a live course, what I like to do is I like to take those students to good examples of uh, permaculture in action. We went down to the home of an orchardist down in Calypso, North Carolina earlier. And this is a gentleman, retired dentist, who has been growing all kinds of fruits. And a lot of them are unusual. So students can go down and expand their definition of fruit. It's not just an apple and a banana. There's chief fruit. There's a wide range of types of figs and grapes and everything that can be grown when people get to a place where they're more stable. I took the class also to Greensboro. The Children's Museum there is the first designated edible school, not yard, but it's not necessarily schoolyard, but edible landscape for children in the nation besides the edible schoolyard that's out in Berkeley. We also went to a t-shirt printing company called TS Designs in Burlington, and they are, in my estimation, probably the best sustainable company in the state. They are really working hard on what is known as the triple bottom line, and that's people, planet, profit. I did my lecture on alternative architecture, which involves building with cob. Cob is a combination of sand, clay, and straw mixed together. Basically, it's adobe, and there are ways that you can build with this. I, I love cob structures because they're organic. They can be very organic in their form, and of course, living roofs are part and parcel of that. You can put that in. We have, in fact, two gentlemen in the area who are coming in to talk about alternative energy systems photovoltaics, of course, as well as wind and water power. And one of those people who is an engineer who used to work at the solar house, he's now working for Progress Energy, I believe. He converted his house. Basically, he put in a system where he's selling electricity back to the grid. He gets a check on a monthly basis from the electric company. Most of us have to pay. So, <laughs> One of the things about this course, I intentionally make it low stress. There are no tests. I don't want people having to stress over learning how to live in sustainably and environmentally sensitive. So basically, it's a low-stress course where you read the book, you show up, you observe what's going on. I have two projects that people have to do over the course of the semester, and they have to look at something of interest to them, be it water, water catchment, photovoltaics, it could be cob, whatever that may be. My students are now gearing up to do this, is they have to get together in groups, and they have to build something. Well, that could be a living roof on a dog house. I had one student that built, it's an energy collector that can be put in a window in a dorm room if it happens to face south. That's called a solar air heater. Some people build cob structures. One student that was on the field trip with me is going to build what is known as a rocket stove. And it's a stove that uses very high oxygen content to twigs. You cook with twigs and you just stick them in this opening and 
the fire burns hot because it's just twigs and lots of air. And when the flame goes up, it hits the bottom of the pot enclosed so that there's not a lot of waste. You can actually boil water quicker using a rocket stove than you can putting it on any conventional oven and turning it up to high heat. I, I want them to run with their interest and, and almost as important to me as anything is I want the students to make whatever knowledge they gain active. I want them to Build something, to do something, not just hang out in their heads in a classroom. Come join us, if you can, for the live course in the fall. You know, being in school is not easy. And a lot of times, a lot of professors think they have to beat your brains out in order to teach you anything. I think you learn better if you're enjoying yourself. So that's what I try to do with my course. I'd like to thank Professors Bryce Lane and Will Hooker for speaking with Eye on the Triangle this week. Listen next week as we highlight more registration opportunities. For Eye on the Triangle, this is Mason Morris. In years past... The North Carolina State Fair has not been known as the most eco-friendly place to be. If you've ever seen the trash along the midway, or noticed the row of dumpsters lining the perimeter of the fairgrounds, you can get an idea of the massive amount of waste that such a huge event creates. However, this year, the fair has made an effort to change their ways. By incorporating the green NC tent, the fair has made an effort to create buzz around green initiatives in our state. Utilizing interactive exhibits, the creators of the Green NC Tent have tried to encourage fair attendees to incorporate green practices in their own lives. But that's not all. During my trip to the fair, I came across one man who's made it his life mission to preach the gospel of sustainability through a thrilling magic show. Since the mid-80s, Steve Trash, the eco-friendly magician, has been teaching children how to be eco-friendly in a very unconventional way. Since 1984, the only thing I've done is Steve Trash magic tricks with garbage. Why the eco-friendly angle? Oh, really there are two truthful answers. The first is, it is a passion of mine. It has been since I was a young person. And the second is, much more commercial, is that I wanted to be very unique in the marketplace of entertainers. And so back about 82, 83, I was looking for a way to be unique among all entertainers I knew. And the green thing was not nearly what it is now. And so it sort of set me apart. And truthfully, I've been coming up with material for 25 years. So I'm way ahead of all of the other guys that are just... And ladies that are catching up and catching on to the green thing right now. You're saying that there's a green magic market. Oh, there's a if you say the word green on anything nowadays, it, it, it gets a little bit of an extra marketing boost. And even if it has nothing to do with sustainability or preserving the environment. I mean, my magic show really does. I'm actually sharing in a very subtle way ecological concepts about how the world works, the fact that garbage is a natural resource that you've just thought is not valuable as opposed to it actually being not valuable. It's in your mind as opposed to being in your garbage can. Now, how did you get into magic? I liked acting and I liked ventriloquism and as a kid almost every almost every male child goes through a magic trick phase and unfortunately for the world I never got out of mine. <laughs> what else do you do besides the fair? Where else do you go, I guess? I'm basically thirds. A third of my touring life, and I'm on the road about 200 days out of the year. About a third is state fairs. 
um, Wisconsin State Fair, North Carolina, Iowa, Illinois, South Carolina, etc., uh, Texas. And then another third, I actually do shows in schools. I bring a much more educational uh, program called the Trash and Recycle Show actually into physically into schools. And then I do performing arts uh, venues and theaters where uh, kids are brought in and I do a very large, elaborate, uh, almost like, like a David Copperfield, but not nearly that elaborate and big. But, you know, big tricks where you float a woman in the air using green magic. Floating a woman with green magic? Yeah, well, the idea behind green magic, real green magic for me is that people can actually make a positive difference in the world if they begin to work together, working with Mother Nature rather than working against Mother Nature, because that's what green is. It's hard to define, but if you just ask yourself, okay, would this work with Mother Nature's natural systems, or would it work against it, you know, if something's biodegradable? Well, everything in nature that comes from nature is bio or photodegradable in one way or another, so yeah, that would work with nature. It's just a, it's a sort of a shorthand way of figuring out what's green. So what uh, is your, uh, your th- you had a theater background, you're a magician. What's your environmental background? Uh, my dad was a forester, my mom a teacher, and I grew up uh, playing in the woods. I'm from, uh, I was born in Texas and raised in Alabama. And I've actually lived and toured all over the world. I just got back from Portugal uh, and Spain, where I was there actually as the only American at in the International uh, Street Magicians Festival in both Portugal and Spain, which was very cool to be representing America doing uh, tricks with trash, because I was like, hey, uh, look at our green thing we got going on here. So how do you identify yourself as Steve Trash amongst all the other street magicians besides the green thing. You, you must have like some trick that no one else can do. <laughs> well, I, I, my specialty is really taking a green story and adapting that to an illusion that I want to do. Probably the most talked about thing here on the grounds would be my, my six second recycling an empty aluminum can. That's the most talked about. That's the thing that people come up and say, are you going to do that one this show? Because we'd, we'd really like to, you know, see it. But I, you know, I'll take pieces of paper and turn it into money. Anything that I can turn into an ecological story that's really good killer magic, that's what I'm going to do in my show. Okay, let's take a break from the interview for a second and hear a magic trick. During his show, I was lucky enough to see the six-second recycling and aluminum can trick, and he wasn't kidding. It was awesome. Here's what it sounds like. I saved the best one for last. You guys want to see the best one? Everybody say, yeah! All right, let's try this bad boy on for size. Hold the phone a second. Hold the phone a second. When I asked earlier how many recyclers I had in my audience, I had a lot, right? You guys recycle? Everybody recycle? Sweet. Well, recycling is really uh, pretty straightforward and simple, right? It's just taking a natural resource and using it over and over and over again. Uh, yeah. Can you give me a favor? Hold your hand. Let me No, let me have the turkey hand. No, you put the turkey. Put the turkey in the other hand, ma'am, and step away from the car. Keep your hands so I can see them. Turkey police. <laughs> Ma'am, hold your hand up. She was like, I'm not setting my turkey down, man. The whole ship is going down before I get rid of this bad boy. I've been looking forward to this all year. Do not deny me turkey breath. Hold your hand up like this, please, sweet peep. This is an empty... Al- you don't look like an aluminum can. You look... Stay right there. Just, you look more like... Hold the cup. See? Hold that just like that. So here's the thing, everybody. When you recycle an empty aluminum can, it can actually be back in the store, on the shelves, in less than six weeks. I know, that's very fast, isn't it? The amazing thing is, 
It doesn't take me six weeks to recycle an empty aluminum can. It only takes me about mm, six seconds. Watch. I'll reseal it. And the best thing of all, it's cold, little mama. That's for you. You can have that. And it's quite drinkable, too. Let's give my helper a nice round of applause, everybody. To Steve Trash, being an eco-friendly magician is not some fleeting gimmick. It's his whole life. In other words, when the show is over, he doesn't pack up his green attitude when he packs up his tricks. My whole life is about Steve Trash. It's not like this is like, oh, I do, I do a safety show and I do a reading show. No, my whole thing is just this. It's the, I live in an earth-bermed home, highly, highly energy efficient. We recycle like we're, you know, uh, recycle fascists at home, you know. We find ways to reuse. I've got a whole pile of junk in the back that I just simply can't bring myself to take to a landfill because I know someday I will find a use for it somehow. I'm just not smart enough to know what I'm going to use it for right this second. I hate it when people get all um, sort of uh, finger pointy, is what I call it, about how little the other person is doing as opposed to how much you're doing. From my perspective, it's all about rewarding what other people do. If you were able to take a bus to try to make yourself have a lesser impact on the environment, one should be applauded for that as opposed to... Uh, picking on the person because, yeah, they had to take a car the rest of the year. You know, let's let's pat people on the back when they're doing a good green thing. It will become easier, and people always do what they get reinforcement for. Well, how do you feel that you're reinforcing these ideas in your magic show? Yeah, back in the 80s, Michael Jackson was the spokesperson for Pepsi. Why was Michael Jackson the spokesperson? Because he was an awesome dancer, awesome musician, singer. He created excitement and fun around a product. And that's what I try to do is to create excitement and fun around an idea. Right, so the next time someone thinks about should I throw that away, whether they're they're not going to think should I be a goody two shoes or not, they're going to think oh wait a minute that trash guy that was yeah he was right yeah maybe I'll just throw that I'll put that in the recycling bin instead of just throwing it away. I try to stay as middle of the road as possible because I need people that are from blue states and people from red states to all get the green thing because the green thing has no political alliance at all. Uh, Mother Nature is totally totally. Uh, ambivalent about what party you're from. And and the ecological world will treat you exactly the same if you're a liberal or a libertarian. It won't matter. The environmental world always works the same way. That's why they're called natural laws. Man didn't make them. And it's not just Steve Trash who respects the laws of Mother Nature. As he casually turns a stack of scrap paper into dollar bills, he strategically inserts his sustainable message right into his trick. So they call me Steve Trash because I'm a recycler. I love to recycle stuff. Everything that's recyclable is valuable. Any recyclers in my audience? Yeah, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. Love you, baby. Love you. Can you see okay? Can you see okay? All right. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, watch carefully. Everything that is recyclable is, check this out. This is crazy good. Watch. Valuable. Yeah, you missed it. That was a spontaneous applause cue. Clapping, cheering, yelling, screaming. Hey, 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 hey. You're somebody's kid, but you're not my kid. And Steve Trash isn't just a fair magician. He has projects on television and on the web. 
I sold my kids' television show, Trash TV. I sold the concept to LeVar Burt from uh, uh, Star Trek Next Generation and from Reading Rainbow. And he's actually got this show that I created in development to make it a nationally syndicated show, both on the web and both on television. But in the interim, we've started creating these things called uh, Green Magic Minutes. It's one minute where I do a very fast sleight-of-hand magic trick, and each magic trick illustrates an ecological principle or concept. So science teachers could actually use it in their classroom. And these will be on Steve Trash Network, which is a YouTube channel. It's called Steve Trash Network. But teachers will be able to get those videos and use them in the class. And at some point in January, I'll put it up. I'll actually put the files up on a, on a cloud hard drive so they can download those and have them in their classroom anytime they want them. Not only is Steve Trash an entertainer, but he's one with the cause. By taking his eco-friendly message to the masses, he's doing the best he can to reach as many people as possible. He's teaching kids without them even knowing it. And if one bottle is saved from a landfill, he's done his job. From the North Carolina State Fair, I'm Chris Chaffee for Eye on the Triangle. We're back. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. Now's the point in the evening where I start to get very hungry. I don't eat food before the show. I eat dinner afterwards. So joining us now is Mark Herring. He's here to torture me a little bit. What are you talking about tonight? Well, uh, tonight I'm going to be talking about some ethnic grocery stores in the Triangle. They're all over the place, and they're a little more exciting than all the food stories we've been hearing about the State Fair. And no, I'm not talking about deep-fried McNuggets or, I don't know, you hear about the deep-fried uh, PB&J? Uh, actually, Chris Chaffee had some of that, and we're going to hear his uh, some uh-huh. audio of his experience with the deep-fried PB&J. Yeah, that just sounds wrong. So we're going for a different type of exotic tonight. Exactly, yeah. It's, I, I find it a little more original. But here we go. So the Triangle is one of the most rapidly growing regions in the nation, and with the increase in population, the food has boomed too. We've got some really great chefs doing some cool things, using a lot of local ingredients, and this place is really exciting for foodies like me to get my fix. However, it's not just the great microbreweries and the hip restaurants that have me head over heels. It's the ethnic grocery stores and obscure little markets that are definitely huge parts of the equation of the coolness in the triangle. So, within the last 50 years or so, Raleigh and the Triangle have quickly deviated from much of the Southern conservatism for which this nation of the country was historically notorious. Today, the Triangle is more diverse than ever, and fortunately, this diverse is proudly celebrated. And most notably, this diversity has has really expressed itself through food. Loads of immigrants are moving here and bringing flavors from all over East Asia, India, the Middle East, and El Mundo Hispano. And no, I'm not just talking about Mexico. First, I want to start off with Grand Asia Market. Yes, the name is enough. It's big, it's Asian, and they pretty much offer every brand or ingredient thinkable from that end of the Pacific. Located just off of Buck Jones Road and Cary, Grand Asia Market brings a burst of spice and excitement to the Cary community, which summed up is a little bland like vanilla ice cream. Which is definitely an understatement about Carrie. <laughs> Sorry to any of you uh, Carrie enthusiasts out there. So, ironically, 
Grand Asian Market seems to jive in this expanse of strip malls and shopping plazas just west of the Beltline. Just walking into the store is overwhelming. It's packed on the weekends, and loads of Chinese, Taiwanese, Filipino, and other Southeast Asian expats are roaming all around looking for ingredients from way back home. It's a bit of a culture shock, with Mandarin Chinese spoken on the intercom, and the definite funk of the fifth of the fish section wafting in from the back. But once you get over the fishiness, an adrenaline r- buzz really kicks in, and the novelty provokes a lot of curiosity. No, I don't che- read Chinese, but I want those noodles that I see. I want that peanut butter whatever it is candy. I need that aloe drink. Don't even mention those little Korean yogurt drinks that they sell there. I'm like an addict in relapse just, just thinking about those things. I do recommend going to Grand Asia Market with an, Asia fr- with an Asian friend, just so it's not so foreign and overpowering. But sometimes I go there just to browse the aisles when I'm bored. They do have a smashing bakery section, and, the little, and there's a little restaurant that serves up Peking duck, dumplings, soups, and steamed rice buns. And yeah, these buns are really good too. And just stealing a description from John here in the <laughs> studio... They're like eating little fluffy angels stuffed with sausage or something equally tasty. I don't think I said fluffy or sausage, but continue. (laughs) I remember the angels part, but it's not important. They're good. Okay, so just moving right along, I want to make a shout-out to the Middle Eastern grocery stores out there. I frequent two, which are convenient and cheap. Just off of Barrel Road, tucked by the railroad tracks, is Neomond Lebanese Restaurant and Bakery. It's a really well-established falafel joint that serves up fresh pita and other artisanal breads daily, and they offer a plethora of Middle Eastern delicacies. Niamon sells a cheap yet delicious selection of olives, various pastries, little Arabic snacks, and fresh cheese from Lebanon and Turkey. This place is definitely worth checking out. And there's also Nurs Deli, which has the same type of half-restaurant, half-grocery store setup. Located in Mission Valley off, off of Western and Avent Ferry, Nurse is the place to go to grab a lamb gyro or here. I never know how to pr- pronounce that if it's hero or gyro. But I think what's important is people know what you're saying. Exactly. That delicious, greasy sandwich. So grab one of those before, an evening, before your evening drinking activities. And I mentioned this b- earlier on the radio, but uh, I just find it really ironic that food from Muslim countries – Goes really well with alcohol, even though alcohol is forbidden. Just getting back on track, I always browse through the grocery store at NERS while I wait for my food, and they sell great deals on olive oil, marinated marinated olives, spices, and other kitchen staples from the Middle East. And no, I don't speak Arabic, and I don't speak Chinese, but I just let my curiosity get the best of me. And that's a pretty good rule to live by if you want to try new foods. Granted, they're not poisoned. So now I want to talk about Indian food. A few weeks ago, I went to Around the World Market with a friend and surprisingly found my store, found myself in the store for an hour. Around the World is an Indian-Pakistani restaurant that sells goodies from the subcontinent to the large South Asian population in the Triangle. It's located off of Hillsborough Street, a quarter mile from the Wolf Creek Apartments. The, se- the selection that surprised me most was the spice aisle. And now, obviously, it's an Indian grocery store, so the spices abound. But the prices are shockingly low. The deal is on bay leaves, 
cumin, garam masala, cinnamon, and all the little spices that go into a cup of chai are astounding. These prices would beat out McCormick's in a true free market any day. Moreover, around the world market serves a variety of Indian, of Indian baked goods and all the ingredient staples in the Indian kitchen, including basmati rice, fresh vegetables, and Kingfisher brand beer. As an enthusiast of Indian cuisine, this place is really exciting, but I would encourage the curious of you to scope it out with an Indian friend because it's easy to get lost in the vast aisles of Hindi, Gujarati, Urdu, Bengali goodness, topped off with the confusion of Bollywood music in the background, which I don't understand, but I'm just really giddy about it. I don't know. It's, it's, a, lot of, it's a lot of fun. Now, I'm missing one thing in my little stint tonight, the Latino markets. I had mentioned them earlier, but I feel like I can't sum them all up in just one minute. It wouldn't do them any justice to generalize the diversity and the, the abundance of these places here. And I don't even think I'll be able to do, do them justice in one show. But I promise to you listening out there that I'll make a little story covering all the little tiendas and mercados in the, in the triangle. And yeah, there's more to them than just tortillas. Prepárense, amigos. Until then, hasta luego and buen provecho. Thank you, Mark. And... I just think that's fascinating. You know, we were barely even just to cover a two-mile radius around campus. Um, if you wanted to, you could come back each week for the next year and tell us about more foreign food markets that you find out there in the Triangle. So, uh, it's astounding. It's crazy. Cer- and Certainly something we look forward to hearing more about, Mark Herring, proving once again that you can find good food beyond the dining hall and beyond Hillsborough Street. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Once again, disclaimer, the establishments that Mark reviews – he is not compensated for his work or his descriptions of them. And WKNC listeners, we don't endorse any particular establishment. And it, I hope it doesn't sound like we do, although many of my favorites are on that list. And if you do drink alcohol, please do so legally and responsibly. I think that about covers it. Thank you so much, Mark. No problem. Thank you. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. And now it's time for Sports on Eye on the Triangle. I'm Taylor Barber here with my friend Tyler Everett, both of us uh, from the technician here. And I guess it's going to be a little different this week. We don't have a uh, football game to talk to as, mercifully, the NC State Wolfpack was on the bye week for the first time this season. Yeah, it's been a while since this pack's last action. Uh, It's been a rough week and a half with no game, no opportunity to bounce back from a terrible loss to ECU. East Carolina's a team that, that's got some big wins this year, but a team state certainly should have beat uh, when you go down 21, but fight all the way back and tie it and then lose anyway and lose largely because of turnovers. Hard to put words to how bad that hurts, especially against an in-state rival against a team you're favored against, uh, beating dead horse here, but a, a real painful loss, and it'll be great to see State at least have a chance to, to bounce back, get on the right track when Florida State comes to on Thursday night. Yeah, there's definitely a sour taste left in a lot of <laughs> NC State fans' mouths, and I'm sure the players as well. I mean, losing that game, and let's hopefully we'll uh, bounce back this week against Florida State. And I mean, this is going to be a huge game. I mean, as bad as the ECU loss was, it didn't actually ever 
hurt us in terms of where we're going in terms of the ACC. Let's be honest. We weren't going to be in BCS eligible. We weren't going to be in that kind of realm. And so, I mean, the ECU loss hurt us. I mean, didn't really hurt us in terms of ACC. I mean, we can still control our entire destiny. We uh, win this game right now. We beat Florida State, and we went out. I mean, we're sitting there in Charlotte playing for the ACC title, Atlantic Conference champions. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. This is a huge game for both teams. I mean, Florida State wins this game. They almost but just wrap up. Gives them a stranglehold on the division. It really does. They're talking about this as an early Atlantic Division championship of sorts uh, with, with State and Florida State both being in the Atlantic Division, the only other team that's really atop those standings right now is Maryland at two and one, but they have not, they have yet to play the bigger top flight opponents in the ACC. So, I mean, it it remains to be seen whether or not they will be a contender come mid late November. But I mean, moving away from that, how about we talk a little NFL? We actually got some, uh, some good news this week coming from bank of America, Uh, uh, a a big win. Welcome change. Yeah. I was at the game and let's say it was nice to actually walk out of there. The crowds weren't as bad. The traffic wasn't as bad. It was just a little more cheery when you walk out of there with the win. And it's about time. Matt Moore showed what Matt Moore has shown in the seasons before when he showed those sparks and it comes from when there's no pressure on him he might kind of struggle when he builds that pressure but hey he looked good throwing for over 300 yards three touchdowns i mean that offensive attack actually uh we actually looked like we had some passing life was it alive it was effective uh a huge thing for me in that game was was not only was it redemption for the team collectively oh and five you finally got a win they haven't made up for all that but when you're oh and five i think two big plays late in the second half were huge that a lot of oh and five teams would have folded matt moore threw his bad passes you'll see middle school it was horrendous varsity uh pretty much might as well have underhanded the ball to the 49ers defensive lineman rumbled stumbled bumbled over matt moore into the the house from about 40 yards out and actually ran right through matt moore on that play so not only did he throw a bad pass the ball went back for a score on a low scoring afternoon a touchdown like that is huge he missed a tackle that had to be in his head it wasn't he came back later through several passes of at least 20 yards big completions that got his team in the game another big huge thing was late, late in the fourth quarter David Geddes, who came out of nowhere. I don't know how many people had him on fantasy. Sixth-round pick did, out of Baylor this yeah, year. If they did, it paid off. I think he caught 215 yards and two touchdowns, and I, Lord knows how many rosters he was even on. But the bottom line is, going away from his big day on the whole, he almost ended up being the GOAT, all that being said. Fourth down and about 12, I believe. Fourth, I think it was fourth and nine from about the 20. Yeah. Panthers could have gone for the easy field goal. Moore drops back, hits Geddes perfectly in stride in the end zone. A beautiful Probably Matt Moore's best pass of the day. Beautiful pass. Geddes is unable to get out of his turn. The ball ends up hitting him off his helmet. Yeah. And he goes to really bum. But, I mean, you got to. Fourth you gotta, down, the Niners <laughs> take over, but Carolina gets the ball back. And instead of him sulking, he comes out that drive and actually catches the game winner. No, the game tying touchdown, a beautifully thrown touchdown, another good route, another good route by Geddes. What was lost on the drop a couple plays before was what a good route he he made a, a nice stick move. He, he stuck outside and then he popped back inside to free himself up, but he didn't finish. Rebounded, showed great determination and and heart to to get that winning touchdown or the tying touchdown, and, and nothing more rewarding than seeing a guy bounce back from a bad play with a huge play like that, especially on a team that's zero and five, and he helped them get to one and five. So both him and Moore, you had to you had to lo- more largely. Had 
good day, but he definitely had a dark point with that interception, and he bounced back and responded in a big way. So too did Geddes. So it was great to see those guys not let it get them down when when so many players in their position would have said, man, we're 0-5 and I just messed up and now we're 0-6. That, that's not what they did. Kept their heads up. Whether you like John Fox or not, I, I am a John Fox supporter. Um, I think that's been a big thing with his teams, even years when they weren't bad. There wasn't much quit in them. And they I have think a, lot a, of poise. Him. a lot of poise. A broken record here, but I, I don't know how many guys on 0-5 teams come back from, from plays as bad as the ones more and get us made to end up helping their team win the game. I thought that was huge and I couldn't have been more encouraged even though it wasn't a, wasn't a beautiful win. Certainly plenty of mistakes, but it, it, it any, any win after five losses is pretty and that was certainly the case Sunday in Charlotte. Yeah, definitely. And a little fun fact for you guys. Uh, with David Geddes's 100-yard game, that was the first 100-yard game by a Panthers receiver other uh, not named Steve Smith or Musin Muhammad since, I think, the 2007 season. The passing game was potent Sunday without Steve Smith. Now, when's the last time uh, somebody said that about the Panthers? I don't know what Smith did, but he was the third leading receiver. Geddes and LaFell both had huge days. LaFell, another rookie out of uh, LSU, and you know, not, not even to mention Armani. He's still been quiet, but if he ever comes along, this might finally be a receiving core to uh, to put a little fear into people as opposed to a one-man show on the uh, perimeter with, with just Smith and then nobody else. Geddes and uh, LaFell certainly showing some promise. No, definitely. I mean, teams are going to take Steve Smith out of the game. They, you know that. You can't let Steve Smith beat you. you got to make these rookies beat you, and this week against Looks the 49ers, like they, they did. very well be capable of doing just that. Yep, definitely. And uh, well, I think that about wraps it up this week for uh, the sports on Eye the Triangle. This is Taylor Barber and, and signing off for him, myself, and Tyler Everett. Have a good week. Very quickly before we leave you tonight, I'm going to send it back over to Katie Costa for a quick weather update. Well, right now we have a tornado watch for the western half of the state. So if you have any friends or family out that way, you might be sure to give them a heads up. Some of the counties in this watch include Guilford, Alamance, Davidson, Forsyth, Person, Randolph, Stanley, and Caswell counties. So be sure to warn any people you know in that area under the watch. Give them a heads up. Also be on the lookout for any watches or warnings that may be issued here in the Triangle. Back to you, John. And watch, of course, just means that conditions are possible. Warning means that conditions are imminent. And, of course, WKNC does relay tornado and severe thunderstorm warnings in our area of operation, which does include Person County. So, folks, all the way out there that can hear us, I know you can. My hometown, actually. Really? Person County? Yep. All mm-hmm. right. Well, sort of. It's 8.01 now, so we've got to wrap it up. But thank you for listening and participating in tonight's program. Join us next week. It will be election night. And if you are able to vote, please get out and do so. We'll have more information about that next week. More of Mason's cool classes here at State. A preview of Couture for a Cause, voting soundbites, and Halloween soundbites. Hopefully we'll have a reporter out at Franklin Street and perhaps Hillsborough Street, too. Lance Newsman actually will be out on Hillsborough Street. We haven't Street heard in, from Lance Newsman. Yeah, in full quite a attire while. actually. That will be his. Uh, he's going as uh, himself for Halloween this year. So Lance Newsman will be making an appearance on the show next Tuesday. So look for that. Excellent. And um, Lance Newsman is very good at answering your questions or coming out and problem solving. We like hearing from you here at the show. And if you want Lance Newsman to come out and uh, answer your question, solve your problem, or explore your story idea. Give us a um, well. Give us a tweet to WKNC EOT WKNC eighty eight one Facebook Eye on the Triangle Public Affairs 
at WKNC.org and our voicemail feedback line, 919-628-0869. Remember that you can subscribe to the podcast of this program through iTunes. Search for EOT or Eye on the Triangle. Tonight's show will be available tomorrow night. Last week's podcast, unfortunately due to technical issues, was not posted when I said it was, but it's there now if you want to go back and listen to the excellent profile of the three candidates running for the 16th District Senate seat here locally. A big thanks to our guests tonight, Chancellor Woodson and Steve Trash. For my producer, Chris Chaffee, correspondents Jacob Downey, Mason Morris, and Tom Anderson, Viewpoint columnist Evan Garris, sportscasters Tyler Everett and Taylor Barber, weathercaster Katie Costa, food critic Mark Herring, and our guest reporter Amanda Wilkins of Technician. I'm your host and public affairs director, John Boyer. Have a great night and join us next time for more Eye on the Triangle. Stay tuned for After Hours.